You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. This week, Pastor Tom Wood brought us the first message in a brand new sermon series titled, Back to the Book. Let's get right into it. Good morning, everybody. It's great that you're able to come and be a part of church this weekend. I hope that you've been made to feel welcome. I hope that you're glad you're able to be here. Um, Anybody going to be watching the game later on? Anybody like crazy excited about it? Okay, so um, in an attempt to um, be funny, which is every dad's goal, I put out there I wanted a joke connecting to the Super Bowl and church, and someone suggested that if the game lasts two and a half hours, maybe that's how long sermon should last. (laughs) Something to think about. Um, And then I thought that if we're going to have seven-layer dip, maybe we should have a seven-point message. The one person that laughed, you are now my favorite. (laughs) So we're going to be starting a new series. We just come off the back. We just spent the last five weeks in our worship series, and I, for one, am delighted with how it went, and the response from the congregation, from the church at large has just been, I'm extremely positive. And so uh, it sounds like the message really landed and really kind of resonated with people as we kind of looked at worship. And so now we're kind of moving into something else, which um, I also believe is highly important, something that we should care about, and it should be important to us as believers. And that's just the idea and the importance of daily Bible reading, daily Bible study, regularly getting in our Bibles. These are traditions. The tradition of reading our Bible as believers is something we should hold on to. It's not something that should become old-fashioned and outdated. No, no, no. This is something that we should grab onto. This is a tradition that we should teach our children about. And so that's why we're uh, having the series and we're calling it Back to the Book. It's a call for us as believers to get back to good old-fashioned Bible reading. In spite of believing in the traditional and even old-timey kind of Bible reading, I probably do about 95% of my own Bible reading on my cell phone. And the plan that we're inviting you to join in us, uh, with us, is going through the New Testament over the course of the next 12 months. And it's online through the YouVersion Bible app. And if I was going to guesstimate, I would say it'll probably take about 5 to 10 minutes a day. And so it's a great way to get in and read through the New Testament in its entirety. The plan that we've chosen also has some videos that help kind of educate a little bit more background and give us some context to work with on the plan. So I highly encourage everybody here to sign up to do this with us. It is going to start tomorrow. It's already been mentioned today. Head to our website. You'll get the link nice and easy. But I wanted to spend some time today as we get kicked off and to consider the importance and the value and the significance of the Bible in our lives. And to do that, I wanted to start off by looking at something in Psalm 8. So Psalm 8 verse 3 When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place. In the New Testament, Paul elaborates on this idea of being able to observe God through nature and through creation in Romans 1. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Nature itself, it proclaims the existence of God. Creation itself makes it plain as day to see that there is a creator. But why isn't that enough? Based on that, that we can see and we can observe that there is indeed a creator, there is indeed God, why isn't that enough for us to just be able to figure it all out? Why do we still need the Bible? People are intelligent. We have self-awareness. 
Can we all just make sense of life and God and society? Why can't we just appoint the most spiritual among us to be priests and philosophers and outsource making sense of religion and spirituality? Why isn't it enough to see God through creation and through observing life? Why do we need a book instead of you and I just figuring it out for ourselves? Proverbs 28, 26. Those who trust in their own insight are foolish. Not a single person on earth is always good and never sins from Ecclesiastes. Jeremiah 17, 9. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? To stop us from drifting, we need a fixed point. We need something definitive. God, in his grace and love, gave us the Bible. In part because trusting on our own insights, as we read from the proverb, it's foolish. From Jeremiah, the human heart is deceitful and corrupt. Without something authoritative and definitive, we're prone to drifting, and history and culture has proven over and over again that we, as humanity, never drift somewhere good. The Bible itself, it was written over a 1,400-year period. It was written on three different continents. The word Bible comes from a Latin word, which means library. And the Bible we have today is indeed a library of 66 books. These 66 books were written by over 40 different authors. These authors include shepherds, kings, prisoners, priests, murderers. There are world-class experts as well as uneducated fishermen that were a part of writing the Bible that we have today. In the original languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, the Bible has over 545,000 words. The Bible has been translated into 1,548 languages as of today, and there are people working on new translations. Interestingly, the Bible is also the most stolen book in the world. The traditional Christian view of the Bible is a belief that I as an individual, word of life as a church, and the assemblies of God adhere to. You can find this on the Assemblies of God website that explain this further. The scriptures, both the Old and New Testaments, are verbally inspired of God and are the revelation of God to humanity, the infallible authoritative rule of faith and conduct. We affirm that God has provided for all time an inspired, inerrant, and authoritative record of his revelation in the Bible, our holy scriptures. We hold that the scriptures are God's sufficient and authoritative disclosure for the salvation of all people, and therefore are authoritative for belief, teaching, and practice. The scriptures define the believer's worldview, morality, and ethics. Moreover, the scriptures are not simply one authority among others, they are the final authority. The Holy Spirit, who inspired the writers in their task of recording the revelation of God, breathes life into and through the writings so that they continue to speak with clarity and authority to the contemporary reader. Now, how we got the Bible from a collection of writings to the book that we have today is a detailed story. And the best outline I've seen uh, is contained in a great book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh and Sean McDowell. I think we've got a picture of the book cover that we can show you. So it's a great book. Um, it's a light read at about 800 pages. If you're bored one weekend, maybe tonight, if you're not interested in the game. And by the way, Sean McDowell, he has a great YouTube channel. But the manner in which the books of the Bible were recognized as authoritative and inspired, I find encouraging and even faith-building. Truthfully, it's not a very exciting story, but by the time of Jesus, the 39 books of the Old Testament were understood to be inspired by God and unique in their status. 
The 27 books of the New Testament were all written in the first century. The church leaders in the second and third century quickly acknowledged the inspired quality of these books and an agreement in the fourth century formally acknowledged what was happening in practice, that the 66 books of the Bible should be treated as inspired, infallible, and authoritative. If you spend any time looking at the history of how we got the Bible, it's plain to see that God's hand has ensured that we have access to the Bible that we have today. The importance of the Bible is further seen in human history and even in current day reality. I read a book a while ago now called The Heavenly Man. It's about a pastor in the Chinese underground church. In China, the church has been heavily regulated and even violently persecuted. We have a great couple in our church they're snowbirds, and so they're in Arizona right now. But Bob and Marsha Chopko, a great part of our church, um, while Bob were, uh, before Bob was retired, he spent a long period of time living in China, living and working in China. And so he would tell me stories about their experience of going to church, about being a believer in China. And they found that as they would go to church, the church that they would go to, only overseas nationals could attend that church. So if you're a Chinese national, you were not allowed to attend the church, so much so that there were military personnel waiting outside the church to check people's passports before being allowed to step into the church. If a Chinese citizen wished to go to church, they had to go to the state-approved church, which was subject to governmental oversight. This gave birth to the underground church, churches that meet in secret. The Chinese believers would secretly arrange meeting places and have a system of codes and communications set up so they can meet for church without the authorities knowing about it. But what was the difference between the state-approved church and the underground church? Simply, the Bible. The state-approved church had a severely edited Bible that didn't contradict what the government wanted the people to believe. The Church for Overseas Nationals freely taught the Bible, but you needed a passport to get in. If you want to destroy the church, you ban the Bible. There are missionaries who have made it their life's work to smuggle Bibles into China illegally so the believers can read and grow in understanding and knowledge of their faith. The author of the book I mentioned a moment ago, The Heavenly Man, is a man called Brother Yun. He describes being in prison for his faith, and while in prison, one of the believers had a handwritten copy of Matthew's gospel. The believers in there would take a page and memorize it, and once they've memorized the page of Matthew's gospel, they would pass it on to another believer so they in turn could memorize it. These believers in prison for their faith would risk beatings and further jail time just to have a chance to read a few chapters of the Bible. They would memorize huge chunks of the Bible because they wouldn't have access to the scriptures for long stretches of time. People are risking their lives and their freedom to smuggle Bibles into China and other countries around the world. Somehow, the lack of free access to Bibles has only heightened the hunger for absorbing the Scriptures. It's not a coincidence that the Chinese underground church is the fastest growing church in the world. And then, there's us. Complete freedom. Total access, 24-7, 365 to our Bibles. I don't have to risk my life to read my Bible. We, as a church, we give away Bibles at the info desk to anyone that asks for one. The prayer team, if they're down here, they have copies of John's gospel to give away to anybody. And as far as I know, nobody is worried that the government may come in and arrest them. I don't feel the urgency to memorize large portions of my Bible because the only copy that I have might get taken away from me at a moment's notice. We definitely need a perspective shift. 
we definitely should joyfully embrace getting back to the book. If one person claps, we all have to. The value of the Bible has always been understood by the heroes of the faith. Here's a few quotes. There are many, many more, but these are just some I thought were especially uh, stood out to me. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Charles Spurgeon, and he's British, which means you know you can trust him. <laughs> From Billy Graham, if you are ignorant of God's word, you will always be ignorant of God's will. Professor Howard Hendricks, God wants to communicate with you in the 21st century. He wrote his message in a book. He asked you to come and study that book for three compelling reasons. It's essential for growth. It's essential for maturity. It's essential for equipping you, training you, so that you might be an available, clean, sharp instrument in his hands to accomplish his purpose. So the real question confronting you now, how can you afford not to be in God's word? Now the Bible is a collection of books written over a large span of time, 1,400 years, consistently been valued and treasured as vital to the people of God. Those who oppress Christianity consistently seek to outlaw the Bible. So valuable that those who are forbidden to own a Bible will memorize as much as they can. It's agreed by all the great Christian leaders of the past to be an essential part of the church and the individual believer's life. Hopefully, all of this will cause us to question the role of the Bible in our lives. Now back in the book of Exodus, following the parting of the Red Sea and the Israelites escaping slavery in Egypt, they began the journey towards the promised land. A significant part of the journey was figuring out how they were to live as God's people in their newfound freedom. How was this new community going to function? They had the stories of the past, which we have recorded in Genesis. They had the trust and faith in the promises that God made to the patriarchs like Abraham and Jacob. This new community of people, while figuring out faith and freedom, keep coming to Moses to settle arguments and disputes. There's so many people, there's so many disagreements, there's so many disputes that are coming to Moses and coming to him for him to make a judgment, for him to make a decision on the behalf of the people. This is happening so frequently that finally Moses' father-in-law Jethro steps in and says, Moses, you have to spread the load. You can't carry this responsibility of being judge and adjudicator and mediator for all the people. You have to spread the load. So Moses gets a group of people that he trusts to help carry the load of making these decisions and these judgments. You've got to find people that can be trusted to help navigate all the conflicts. And it's important to note that it's afterwards, it's after this long period of time that Moses, who's been acting as a judge or mediator or an arbitrator, it's after that that God calls Moses up the mountain and gives him the Ten Commandments. It's after Moses has been making judgments and making calls on right and wrong. The nation of Israel is trying to figure all this out, life following God, living in his promises, embracing their newfound freedom. And they've started getting uh, mediation and rulings from Moses and a group of trusted people. But now Moses has gone up the mountain, got the Ten Commandments, so now they have the law. My assumption is that when the Ten Commandments came, there wasn't anything on there that was surprising to the nation of Israel. Moses and the trusted leaders, they've been acting as a judge and drawing on God's wisdom. And that would have surely meant that the principles of the Ten Commandments would have been known, understood, and practiced for a long time, long before Moses received the stone tablets. When Moses comes down the mountain, I'm guessing that the majority of people would agree that these Ten Commandments would indeed help them stay on course. They would undeniably help nurture a thriving and harmonious and functioning society. 
These people, they had freedom. They had a promise. They had a legacy. They have the stories of the past. They had leaders that would help them mediate. And still, they needed it written down. And why? Because those who trust in their own insight are foolish. Not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. And the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Their life experience, their emotions, selfishness, temptation, pride, brokenness, the world's values, all of it would distort how God's people were to navigate life. The Ten Commandments is possibly the oldest example of God's will and God's heart being written down. It was possibly written before Moses would write down and record the stories of Genesis. Part of the reason they were written down permanently in stone by the finger of God himself was so that there was something beyond public opinion. It was written down, so it was beyond mob rule. It was beyond the whims of the moment. It was beyond argument and debate. This is God's law. And the promise is, from Deuteronomy 6, these are the commands, decrees, and regulations that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. You must obey them in the land you are about to enter and occupy. And you and your children and grandchildren must fear the Lord your God as long as you live. If you obey all his decrees and commands, you will enjoy a long life. Listen closely, Israel, and be careful to obey. Then all will go well for you, and you will have many children in the land flown with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. And this promise, and others like it, they emphasize that the Bible is a gift from God to you and to me. The promise is that adhering to God's will, as seen in the Bible, is the best way to navigate the broken world that we live in. The promise is that if I adhere to the Bible's teaching, then it will go well for me. But here's another aspect of that promise that doesn't get said often enough. If I adhere to what the Bible says, if I adhere to what the Bible teaches, if I adopt God's heart as my own by getting in the Bible and studying it for myself, and that's how I decide to live my life, it goes better for you. If that's the decision you make, it will go better for the person next to you. If you become the kind of person that God teaches us to be, it will be better for your spouse and for your children. Much of the Old Testament, it follows God's people as they figure out living with the promises of God, with Him as their King. And there are many ups and downs as they figure all this out. We see clearly that a group of broken people trying to live and function in a broken world is messy. But there's a continual thread throughout the Old Testament that a Messiah, a rescuer, a Savior is coming. And by the time of Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, by the time Jesus comes, God's people are desperate for the Messiah to deliver them. The expectations were varied and even distorted about what a Messiah would look like. Some assumed the Messiah would be a military leader that would rise up and start a rebellion. Others thought the Messiah would be a king who would reign from a throne. Others thought a highly religious and pious person would lead the way in a renewed religious commitment. It's not surprising that Jesus confused many. A large amount of Jesus' ministry was spent contending with his fellow Jewish people who were expecting the Messiah to look different than a carpenter from some small insignificant town. They thought it'd be different than someone who taught his disciples to love their enemies and to be the servant of all. Our main verse today is going to be looking at one of the many contentious moments between Jesus and the religious experts of the day. The religious leaders were trying to discredit Jesus by asking him tough questions in front of his disciples and a crowd of onlookers. The religious leaders had already put two questions to Jesus to try and trip him up, and it didn't go well for them, so they're going for a third try. This is where we're going to pick it up, Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. 34. 
But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? This is the third attempt of putting a question to Jesus that they expect will trip him up and discredit him as a teacher. It appears that the religious leaders assume that if Jesus is made to look foolish or heretical, then his disciples and the crowd that he's amassed will abandon him and the movement that Jesus is starting will die out instead of causing a disruption to what they wanted to have going on at the time. The Pharisees and Sadducees, for all intents and purposes, are two rival Jewish sects that act like a denomination. And they've decided to team up to try and trip up Jesus. So they put forward an expert in religious law, someone that's an expert at knowing the fine details, the fine print of the scriptures. And the question they bring to Jesus is a quite common question. Now, the rabbis of Jesus' day, they would often have public debates and conversations about the things of faith, especially the scriptures, and it's not too dissimilar today. So I often will watch a debate or a panel discussion between opposing views to try and learn something. So in the same way that I may watch a debate on YouTube, people would gather to hear different rabbis wrestling different topics. And the historians tell us that this question, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses, that that question was a common question that the rabbis would often debate together. The religious leaders weren't hoping to learn anything, just that Jesus would trip himself up or say something heretical. Now let's see how it goes. Verse 36, teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind. It's not three different ways to love God, but rather it's three different ways of saying you should love God with your whole life. But then, equally important, is to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus is unmistakably saying that these verses encapsulate, summarize, and explain the heartbeat of the whole Bible, to love God and to love people. I'm going to make a statement and then spend the rest of our time together unpacking this statement. If you're not in the habit of taking notes, I encourage you to do so. Grab a pen, jot this down, put it in your phone. If you don't have a piece of paper, write on the neck of the person in front of you. In 20 years, that joke will still be funny. All right. The Bible is primarily teaching us why we love God and how to love people. The Bible is primarily teaching us why we love God and how to love people. If you approach every passage or story from the Bible asking the question, what does this teach me about why I should love God and what does it teach me about how I can love people? You'll always have a rich and powerful time engaging with the scriptures. The Bible is primarily teaching us why we love God and how to love people. To answer the question that the expert put to Jesus, he responds with two verses from the Old Testament. The first verse that Jesus responds with is a passage from the Old Testament known as the Shema. And this is Deuteronomy, going all the way back to a book that Moses wrote, Deuteronomy 6.4. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. 
And the following verses give people instructions about what to do with this. Deuteronomy 6, 7. Repeat them again and again to your children. Repeat the prayer that I just taught you over and over again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. At the time of Jesus, this was faithfully being upheld by the Jewish people. Twice a day, these people would pray the prayer that we just read in Deuteronomy 4. Twice a day they would say, listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. This was repeated twice a day. And if anyone does anything twice a day, it's likely to become an overly familiar exercise. Without anybody deliberately doing it, something that's done twice a day becomes a routine. Too often we lose sight of its importance and significance. I was thinking about my own ways that I do this in my own life. For instance, if I pray, especially if I'm praying in public, I'll always end a prayer by saying, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I didn't pull that out of thin air. That's something that's taught in the Bible. But whenever I end a prayer by saying, in Jesus' name, amen, am I really stopping and thinking and questioning the weight of what I am saying? In Jesus' name, I'm appealing to the creator of the universe in the name of his son that makes all of this possible. When I'm coming to God in prayer, I'm not praying on my authority, on my wisdom, on my good ideas. No, no, no. I'm praying in the authority that Jesus extends to believers. In Jesus, that's a heavy thing. When we come together and we we pray for a meal, do we really sort of get together? Do we really have in our minds of, God, you are a provider. Without you, there's no way I'd have the strength to be able to get up and figure this all out ourselves. Lord, I am here today with my family conversing around a table, and we're having a meal together because of you. Or are we saying grace because it's what we've come to do? A few weeks ago, I challenged myself because I was thinking about uh, the worship uh, series and the idea of the posture of worship and how I'll come into worship and I'll, I'll lift my hands in praise and I'll lift my hands in worship. But am I actually thinking about why I'm doing this or is this just part of my worship routine? And that kind of weight is what Jesus was putting on the people. This prayer that you pray twice a day, think about it. This prayer that you pray twice a day, don't just do it by habit. Why are you praying this prayer? Think about it. It's the most important thing you can pray. The idea of loving God, don't just get used to it. Don't be casual about it. Be amazed and in wonder that we can live in a loving relationship with the creator of the universe. That despite all of my flaws and my imperfections, despite all the countless ways that I've pushed him away, I can love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, and soul. He can be in a loving relationship with me. An important part of reading the Bible is to continue to be amazed by this. To be amazed by his power and his majesty, his goodness, his grace. To be amazed by the power of the cross. To be aware of how desperately I need a savior and how quick he was to give me one. To be amazed at how lost I would be without the love of God. Be amazed by this. Don't let it become a routine that's forgettable and meaningless. Be amazed. Why should I love God? Why should I love him with all my heart, all my soul, and all my mind? Reading the Bible and seeing the wonder and majesty of God keeps it fresh. Keep discovering how amazing God is. Not an empty daily reminder, but a daily discovery of how incredible he is. Getting into the Bible will give us unlimited reasons and continual reminders of why we love God with all our heart, all our mind, and all our soul. But Jesus doesn't stop there. 
He also points to a verse in Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. Now this verse assumes that we're taking care of ourselves, that we care about our own well-being, and for us to function well together, we should extend that care and concern to others. This is a call for a true and sincere love for people. And every single one of us knows this is a lot easier said than done. Reading the Bible, seeking to understand and learn how to love each other, how to conduct ourselves, how do we navigate human relationships, how do we live in a way that improves the community instead of disintegrating it? The answer from Jesus is we love others the way we love ourselves. It sounds straightforward, but of course, every single one of us has countless examples where someone treated you in a way they would never want to be treated. Likewise, you've treated people in ways you would never want to be treated. As straightforward as it sounds, we need reminding of how we are supposed to do this. And in a culture where people don't want to be told what to do, the need for the Bible to teach us all how to conduct ourselves, how to treat one another, where we need to exercise self-control, the need for the truth of the Bible is only going to increase. It's worth observing that Jesus starts with, love the Lord your God. That's the first thing. And the Jewish audience he was speaking to wouldn't have been shocked that this was his answer. What was shocking is that there's something of equal importance. The original Greek paints the picture of this love for people and the love for God are not only equal, but they're also the same. Meaning that this love for people and the love for God is all from the same heart. The heart that loves God will also love people. A heart that loves God won't be able to hate people. One of the explanations I read about this as I was getting ready for this morning is this idea of, you know, love God is, is kind of a vertical relationship. To love God is, you know, up and down. And then to love people is side to side, it's horizontal. You know, kind of this up and down, side to side. And as I was thinking about it, I couldn't quite get on board with that picture. And the reason I couldn't get on board with that picture is that if, if that's how we make sense of this, then there will be moments that we believe are all about loving God. In this moment right now, it's all about an up and down thing. It's, it's all about up and down. And then other times it's time to love people and it's all side to side, which kind of means we can have a day where it's going to be like an up and down kind of day. And there'll be other times where this morning I'm kind of going to have a side to side kind of morning and it's forgetting and it's neglecting that the call is for this to be one heart. And it's not something we can switch. We can't have an up and down moment and a side to side moment. It's all from the same heart. Are you tracking with what I'm saying? It's not a distinguishable thing. They're knitted together, they're fused together. The heart that loves God is a heart that will love people. A heart that truly loves people is a heart that will seek out and learn how to love people by trying to figure out their relationship with God. It's not something we can dissect, it's not something we can distinguish, it's not something we can easily identify as two separate qualities, but instead this gets merged together, married together as one quality, to love God and to love people. It's important to note that the first command was to love God, that's where it starts. But if that's where we stop, we're not upholding Jesus' teaching to also love people. Love for God and love for people. It inspires obedience with joy. The sincere love will naturally add a sense of ease to upholding our faith. This command from Jesus tells us that love should dominate both our emotions and our conduct. It goes on in Matthew 20, 22, verse 40. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. The entire law, all of it, all of the demands, all the things that the prophets say, they're based on the two commandments. Love God, love people. Another translation, the New American Standard Bible, says upon these two commandments hang 
the whole law and the prophets. And that word hang is lifted directly from the New Testament Greek. Upon these two commandments, love God, love people, hang the whole law and the prophets. Now, in my house, we have a, a bathroom where the kids, that's where they do whatever gross stuff kids do in a bathroom. Not long after we'd moved into the house, we moved in the house about two years ago now, and after, not long after we moved in the house, the towel rack that we put up started to come right off the wall. And after a little investigating work, it turned out that the kids, as they were getting out of the shower, was putting their entire weight on the towel rack to get themselves out. Now, who did it and who's guilty is not something I can confirm or deny at this point, but let's just say my oldest son weighs a lot more than my daughter. But the towel rack couldn't hold the weight of my kids. For these two commandments, to hang the whole law and the prophets, that's what they're hung on. And these two commandments, love God, love people, that's the rack. What we're hanging on there is the rest of the Bible. And the promise from Jesus, the word from Jesus, is that love God, love people, is strong enough to hold that weight. It's the glue that binds the whole Bible together. It's the thread that runs throughout the whole Bible. It holds it. It hangs on there. Literally, it's hanging on there. Those commands, that is enough that to carry the weight of everything that is in the Bible. The strength of the Bible is the love for God and the love for people. It's the agent that binds the whole book together. That's what makes the Bible coherent is love. Paul the Apostle, he was an expert in the Scriptures. Certainly a far better expert than any of us could ever aspire to be. It was Paul that wrote 13 letters which make up nearly a quarter of the New Testament. Paul is quoted or he alluded to the Old Testament around 256 times in his writings. And this is a quote I read about a book on Paul this past week. Paul has something else of which fewer people could boast. He gives every impression of having swallowed the Bible whole. He moves with polished ease between Genesis and the Psalms, between Deuteronomy and Isaiah. He knows how the story works, its heights and depths, its twists and turns. He can make complex allusions with a flick of the pen and produce puns and other word plays across the languages. The radical new angle of vision provided by the gospel of Jesus is a new angle on text he already knows inside out. And that's by a book by N.T. Wright, who is also British and therefore trustworthy. In short, Paul is somebody we should take seriously as an authority on the Bible. Paul is an expert. Paul is someone whose voice on this should be listened to more than anyone else's. And this is something he wrote in the book, uh, letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. 
It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know and now know is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Let love be your highest goal. I spent time this week and looked it up, largely because I'm a nerd. Depending on how you translate the Hebrew, there's well over 800 times in the Bible that directly talk about love, meaning that it uses the word love. Sometimes it's obvious to see the Bible teaching the love of God, and other times it takes reflection and questioning. What's rather straightforward is that even though individual passages may cause questions, the book as a whole, the whole collection of 66 books, points to why we should love God and how we can love people. Love truly is the consistent theme throughout the whole Bible. The account of creation is a reminder of God's unique power and majesty. The stories about the Israelites being victorious in battle, they show the, the power of God at work in the lives of people. There may be a chapter that details a list of commands that tell us how devastating sin is to ourselves and to the lives of others. Perhaps there's a psalm that poetically empathizes with the struggles of humanity, but then goes on to remind us of the goodness of God in life's bleakest moments. Perhaps it's a proverb that keeps common sense common. The stories of kings and peasants, stories of families and kingdoms, they help teach us the healthy and honoring way to live with one another. Or think about the prophets that are pleading with people to turn back to God. Reading about people transforming their lives and their character. Or about Jesus teaching about caring, about the concerns of others. Or perhaps Paul giving the churches a stern reminder about the importance of holiness. Or the book of Revelation inspiring believers to have an eternal perspective. All of it is hung on and is encapsulated by love. A love for God and a love for people. You know, the, uh, the Bible app that we use for our plans and I use regularly, it has a section on their websites that I'm able to access and, uh, access, and they call it Insights. And it shows how people are using the Bible app and how people are using the app to read the Bible. And I'm able to see the stats for the most searched words that people do. So if they open the Bible app and they're looking up something and they can type in in the search bar, want to know more about this, I'm able to see what words people are searching for. It's really interesting. It shows the most searched for word in different countries. And I was even able to see the most searched for words in New York State. Okay, so this is not Bible Belt. Okay, this is us. This is our community, our state. All its ups, all its downs, all the things you love about New York State and all the things you hate about New York State. This is what our people, our neighbors, are searching for in the Bible. The top five. Number one, love. Number two, anxiety. Number three, healing. Four, hope. And five, peace. You know, two things 
came to my mind when I saw this. Firstly, I was glad that people are looking for love within the Bible. That's taking on board what Jesus has been teaching us in Matthew 22. Secondly, I presume that people are looking to find the true definition of love. The definition that gets thrown around today is not the kind of love we see in the Bible. The kind of love that Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 13 would be strange and laughable to a modern culture. But this, it shows me that people are turning back to the Bible to get a true definition of love. The top five shows that people are also struggling with anxiety and the need for healing and finding hope and a longing for peace. I hope that as people grasp true love, they find a true biblical definition and a true picture of what it means to love God and love people, that through that they will start to find peace and healing and hope. When I started um, Bible college, um, I kind of went and I, I, I had this, um, I guess pride and arrogance is the only way to say it. Um, out of my group of friends, you know, back in the UK, I, I liked reading my Bible more than my friends did. And I love reading the Bible. It, I, I, it just, it's always been something I've enjoyed as a believer. And so I went to Bible college and I kind of had this confidence of, you know, I actually know my Bible pretty well, but I, I guess I'll see what you guys know. On my first day, I quickly realized, Tom, you know nothing. And then by the time I graduated, I realized, not only do you know nothing, you know a lot less nothing than you thought you knew. And I opened my eyes to realize the, the deep, rich treasure of the Bible. I now know that I can spend the rest of my life studying the Bible, and I will never run out of fresh and powerful reasons to love God. I will never get to the point where I don't need God's unshaking words to, to guide my conduct and teach me how to love people. If our goal from reading the Bible is to love God and love people, we will always have a rich and meaningful time reading the scriptures because we're approaching it with the attitude Jesus told us to. Creation undeniably testifies to the existence and wonder of God, but the human heart is wicked. Those who trust in their insights are foolish, and there's not a single one of us who can claim perfection. So even though we may be able to see the existence of God through life and creation, we need a fixed point. We need something to help guide us. God in His grace, His love for humanity, He inspired people to write books that record historical events, the books of poetry, speeches, songs, letters. And those writings, under God's guiding hand, have been collected into the Bible. And so believers have an authoritative fixed point. Throughout history, oppressive forces have sought to ban and criminalize the Bible, but the hunger for the Scriptures only increase under persecution. Great church leaders would all agree on the importance of Bible reading and Bible study for all believers. When God's people walked through the Red Sea, out of slavery and into the freedom He promised, they needed something to help them function and thrive. Despite Moses' best efforts to mediate and help settle disputes, they needed a written standard. It became obvious that it was needed, and the newly freed slaves were given the Ten Commandments. When Jesus the Messiah came, those who were eagerly waiting for the Messiah didn't recognize that standing right in front of them was the Son of God, the only one who can set them free. And to trip him up and discredit him, a group asked him which passage of the whole Bible summarizes and encapsulates the whole scope of the Scriptures. Jesus points them to two. The first is the prayer that they pray twice a day. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He went on that the second is love your neighbor as yourself, straight from Leviticus. 
It was time to start paying attention to the prayer that could have been prayed on autopilot twice a day. It's time to weigh up what that means. And it's time to start caring about the concerns of well-being of those around me. Jesus told the crowd 2,000 years ago that what summarizes and what encapsulates the Bible is a call to love God and love people. This is what carries the weight of the whole Bible. This is what binds the whole book together. The confusing parts of the Bible, the shocking parts of the Bible, the uncomfortable parts of the Bible, the weight of the whole book is carried and held by the call to love God and love people. The Bible is a limitless treasure to be discovered. The Bible is not a means to win an argument. It's not a religious obligation. It's not a source of pride. It's not a mindless routine. It's remembering that the Bible is primarily teaching us why we love God and how to love people. I got a couple of questions for you. If you're in the habit of writing these down and perhaps something to think about this week or pray about this week, maybe ask somebody to talk through it with you. The first question I put to you is, what's my motive for reading the Bible? What's my motive for reading the Bible? Is it to win arguments or a religious obligation or is it an empty routine or habit? Or is it to be amazed all over again at the countless reasons we have to love God and learn to be corrected about how to love people? What's my motive for reading the Bible? Second question I put to you, what do I expect to happen if I'm approaching the Bible with the correct motive? Now Jesus told us what the correct motive is. It's to find out how to love God and why we love people. And if that's truly how we read the Bible, what can we expect to happen? If you approach every passage or story from the Bible by asking the question, what does this teach me about why I should love God? What does this teach me about how I can love people? What do you think will happen? I'm going to go ahead and invite everyone to stand. We're going to go back into a time of worship. If you'd stand with me for a moment. i got a few more verses that really emphasize and really highlight a lot of what we've been talking about today. 1 Peter 4, 8, most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus talking in John 13, so now I am giving you a new commandment, love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. 1 John 4, we love each other because He, God, loved us first. If someone says, I love God but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people, we can see how can we love God whom we cannot see. And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. 1 Corinthians 14. Let love be your highest goal. Lord, I hope that something from today, one of the verses that was read, something from today, will inspire your people to crave and be hungry for getting back into the Bible to find out why we should be in love with you with all our hearts, with all our soul, with absolutely everything that we are, why we should do this, Lord, your wonder, your majesty, your goodness, your power. Lord, why we should devote our lives to you and then how we can be your people, we can represent your kingdom, we can represent your values, we can live in a helpful, honoring, loving way to the people around us. Lord, inspire something deep in the hearts of your people today. Lord, may we truly be people that get back to the book. Good old-fashioned Bible reading. Lord, we love you. We trust you. Lord, bless your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, everybody. Let's have more moments in worship together. Amen.